All right, we are back with another episode of the Work Week After Hours. Uh, I've got my normal uh, friend Steve here with me, and Steve, we've got a special guest with us today. Yeah, I'm excited. We uh, have invited Sally Thornton here. Sally's someone I've known for at least a decade or more, um, and at various points in my life when I need a you know phone a friend. Uh, calling a lifeline, uh, I'm hit a wall, or I'm, I need to uh, run some ideas by someone. Sally's on my short list of people that I love to brainstorm with. So, Sally, welcome to uh, the Work Week After Hours. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, and tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, your background, where you're from, so we get a chance to understand a little bit of where you're coming from. Yeah, I love the where you're from, right? It's so much different than where do you live. So I'm from Minnesota. And so I say things like you betcha and hot dish, you know, not as a joke. <laughs> <They're part laughs> of my um, and I started my career in New York and then I've been out in the Bay Area for over 20 years. Um, so definitely adopted the California mindset of like, let's question everything. Um, which has, has really served me in my entrepreneurship. So I've been an entrepreneur for 15 years um, and essentially trying to solve the issue of how we make work better. Um, the way in which I did it, I started as an interim, a company that did interim HR um, placements. And I'll give you a specific example because people are like, what the fuck does that mean? By the way, can I swear? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, so like, that CMO of Shutterfly was French and wanted a maternity leave. And she's like, I don't want your stupid American maternity leave. I'm French, <laughs> but she's a CMO. Like you can't have a CMO gone for six months. So we did an interim, you know, backfill placement um, of her role. So we do HR and marketing, but honestly, because my background's in HR and Andrea Yell, who's one of my uh, founding principal people at the firm is background in HR. We tend to get more HR because they, we've been in the seat. So they right. often want to know, you know, like what's it really like versus a recruiter mm -hmm. who just looks at a resume. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so we'd start doing interim stuff. And that was my way of trying to make the fluidity of work. When I saw it, when I looked at the future of work solved, because you could have more load balancing for teams when you've got people coming and going Frankly, mm -hmm. I always cared about the women's issue with the fact that there aren't enough women at the table. And so if we can help women when they need these specific times off, that's a win-win. And so for me, my entrepreneurship journey was about how do we do this in a practical way that solves a social need as well? Like what's the economic need first? Entrepreneurs have to have a decent ROI for everyone involved, but then secondarily, how does it actually make work a little bit better for all the people involved, the humans who I actually really like? Um, and that's the, the angle of diversity, equity, inclusion. That was sort of like my secret sauce. But then in the last few years, because um, I've been doing this a while, you know, suddenly DEI is now important to everybody, which is great. <laughs> I'm happy that I don't mm -hmm. have to have a secret sauce that I can talk about it. Um, and the fact that we talked about fluidity in the future of work has now become more normative. So for me, the journey in the beginning was very painful because when you have a business model that you have to keep explaining and people look at you sideways and say, where's your headquarters? And I'm like, we're virtual. You know, they used mm -hmm. to think I was really like not a real company. <laughs> and I'm like, no, right. here's my C-Corp status, right? So so I feel really grateful that now my story is very boring, that everyone knows it. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it's just, I think with the, the point about questioning I love about 
entrepreneurship. And I wouldn't have done that if I stayed in Minnesota. This is the beauty of social mm -hmm. science. Like if I'd stayed in Minnesota and I had shit hit the fan, which is what happened. My brother was killed mm -hmm. in a plane crash when I was eight months pregnant. And that was what made me rethink, like, what's it to be a mother? What is it to be a workaholic? And I had to question mm -hmm. my workaholism. And I was married to someone who was a workaholic. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say to Minnesota, I would have just probably, you know, been sad, <laughs> to be honest. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. just, you know, maybe found a part-time job at Target. Mm -hmm. um, but here in the Bay Area, when, you know, when people hit these major life changes, you just question everything. You talk to really smart people like yourself. And you were an early advisor to me at LinkedIn when I went to LinkedIn and said, you know, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. You're like, I get it. Um, mm -hmm. so, so anyway, that's that's essentially my journey is question everything, stay, you know, focused on the win, 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 um, and just think about the humans involved because it really does benefit the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I remember before Forche, you had a firm Flexperience. Yeah which was probably ahead of its time. Now looking at Fiverr and Upwork and all these other massive platforms. Um, and we've had a couple of episodes, Shane and I, where we really rip some of the challenges with um, the model of work being so out of date. And even so far as simple things like the financial forecasting, yeah. what's our head count? Right. Is that, that's just flawed. Right. right, right. Um, and it should, it doesn't account for like, let's just create some value. Right. Right. And, um, and it, it just reduces. And I've had so many stories earlier in my career of failed job sharing, failed, you know, trying to get two working uh, folks to split up a role. And, and they were good with it, but everyone else is like, what, how does this work? Yeah. I need one person to be accountable. And I feel it's interesting as we go into this year, I still feel people, this is a big, um, tripping, you know, uh, area where people are just tripping up, like trying to reimagine different ways of creating value. That's all we're here for. It yeah. doesn't have to be a full-time person, right? Yeah. You still, you see any rays of hope in terms of the folks you're dealing with, like uh, being more creative in terms of their employment options? Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, to your, to your point, sometimes it's just that we're asking the wrong question, right? So if it's like, who's going to fill this job? That's a very like 1900s question, right? Mm -hmm. Versus who, how can we get this work done, right? Is a better question. And mm -hmm. that's why you can think, okay, who internally, who externally, like how do we get this done? And how do we always have an ROI? And I'll give you a specific example. When we started doing recruiting for a high-tech firm that I can't mention because they're very fancy, mm -hmm. um, I was kind of surprised that they hired us because they're very fancy. And they said, well, no, no, it's because you're objective. Like, you by definition, by being an outsider, have not succumbed to all of our politics and our beliefs that like we're the best, right? And so, so, so there's this thing around around recruiting where it's like, how do you have objectivity and question things? But then the other thing that they noticed was, you know, they would just give a bunch of recs, uh, requisitions, people who aren't recruiters, requisitions mm -hmm. to a person, and just mm -hmm. hope they did the best and have these stupid stupid numbers of like time to fill as if that's mm -hmm. what matters, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Do you think the hiring mm -hmm. manager cares if it's 20 days or 40 days? Or do you think the hiring manager cares that in three, six, 12 months that this person is like a rock star, right? Um, but those aren't measurements. And so it's really interesting because when you're an external provider of talent, you're measured on that stuff. The only reason someone comes back to me isn't because I filled it in 20 days or I had 15 recs. Like the measurement's different. The measurement is ROI. It's a mm -hmm. business 
measurement when you're dealing business to business. But for some reason, internally, there aren't really business metrics. It's this, these old metrics that someone handed down and felt like, well, that's how they did it before. And so, you know, right. and it isn't questioned. So I kind of like being on the outside because it has to be a business question of how do we get the work done instead of defaulting into these operational modes that's like, well, that's the way it's been done. Even though they don't think that that's what they're doing, that's what we mm-hmm. do. Like our default mode network is to just repeat patterns. It's less exhausting, right? From a mm-hmm. neuroscience perspective. So mm-hmm. I don't say it with judgment. I just say it with like, how do we bring the balance of neuroscience and social science to be able to question things and look at how business models can disrupt it in a good way? Mm-hmm. And this, this makes me think something that uh, Shane and I love talking about, which is we seem to be at a point where jobs and work is changing so fast that we may be heading towards a reality where we're going to hire people on what they can learn, not what they know. Yeah. Um, and that's really scary. Are you seeing some of that? Or are you seeing like, hey, we need people that, you know, finest folks with high learning velocity, uh, capacity to grow and learn. Are you still like, here's the job spec, you know, let's hire for today and yesterday but not thinking about tomorrow. You know, I will say I have more of the latter because mm-hmm. also we're small. And so the way in which we attract clients is they like the fact that we're weird. Like, <laughs> you right. know what I mean? They aren't looking for the cookie cutter. So mm-hmm. I do think big companies who go with big firms are looking for a volume play, which is got to be more rote, right? Mm-hmm. How do you scale a lot of this stuff is really what's tricky. Yeah. What's fun about being small is you can be really nimble and you're very clear about your point of view. So no one goes to Forche's website and says like, oh, you're going to be my volume play, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So instead, mm-hmm. I have like one company right now that's a SaaS company. And, you know, typically when, when companies give us a job description, this is an executive search, they're filling a chief people officer. It's very boring. The job description is horrendous. But this time, because they were already attracted to our weirdness, their job description was so good. We were like, we're barely going to fix this. <laughs> you know, like you've really. Wow, that's yeah, encouraging. Growth mindset, you know, mm-hmm. thoughts around inclusion and diversity. Like it was very, very modern. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I have a little bit of a selection bias where the clients who come to us already have an interest in what we do being a little mm-hmm. bit more on the edge. But then for, for certain, we talk about like full spectrum thinking from Bob Johansson and the, you know, Institute of the Future and things like that. We try to keep bringing in new ways for them to think about it so that we're not just execution oriented, but we're always co-creating. Mm-hmm. I will say our clients, I mean, and we list some of our clients if people are interested on the website. Um, our clients tend to already be more on the growth mindset curve where mm-hmm. learning is essential then mm-hmm. um, been there, done that. And also, you know, the data are clear around the fact that that's not where performance is, right? So the, if if hiring people are paying attention to what actually predicts performance, mm-hmm. they know that, they've seen that data. And, you know, we do blogs on it. So if anyone is not following what I'm saying, like go to the Forche blogs, because we have like, here's what the data says about predicting performance. This is how to write a job description. Like it's all there if people are paying mm-hmm. attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're reminding me of one of my real triggers, which is when someone who knows me uh, and they've known me for a long time will say, hey, uh, my friend is looking for uh, a head of HR. Do you know anyone good? And I'm thinking, Uh kill me now. 
Are you <laughs> kidding me? Yes. I mean, good at what? You know, what, what, do you, what, what do you need? Do you need someone who's got a coaching orientation, a compensation orientation, a benefits orientation, who's really good in small teams? What, what evolution are you as a business? Like, do I know anyone good? Even HR, uh, you know, professionals that I've worked with, like, don't not recognizing that, not caring about our craft enough to know, like, no, one size doesn't fit all here. Right. Right. And, and then also, what do you have that's going to take some candidate's eye off of a great opportunity? Like, it's just, oh, yeah, we're nice. We pay well. We got a good set of investors and we're going to make a lot of money. Like, so everyone says that, right? Yeah. It still amazes me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, yes, I actually still get that. And mm-hmm. from friends where my job is to get paid to do this. And so when they ask me that, I'm like, are you asking me to do my job and not get paid? <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. And it's, I think, honestly, Steve, that comes from, people wanting a quick answer and that there's, mm-hmm. there just aren't these quick answers. So that, mm-hmm. that to me is where I'm most interested in playing in the future is before when you and I would talk about the future of work, like it was, it's a big topic and this was pre pandemic. And so we would have to set the stage for them. Now that everyone's had this accelerator of like what the future of work is, I've actually narrowed it to talk about the future of teams and to say, this mm-hmm. is complex. When you're asking for a simple answer, like, Hey, can you give me a name? That is you being exhausted, which I totally have compassion for. Mm -hmm. It's obviously too narrow because things are complex and we need to be able to spend the time to have a little bit of upfront, deep conversation to then go fast. And if we start with the fast, it's very, very simplistic Mm -hmm. and you're kind of basic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And so if we can pull people to just like, okay, let's actually talk about what problems we need to solve. And- Let's be honest about the complexity of what is the right person for this team. You know, also sometimes they'll come to me and they'll say, you know, we really need a diverse slate, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, great. What does diversity mean to your team? Because I have mostly women on my team. So actually a man is diverse in my team, right? Mm. So even the way people talk about diversity, they try to simplify. Be like, we need a diverse person. First of all, there's no diverse person. Like people aren't diverse. Teams are diverse. Societies. No, right. And so anyway, it's just more complex. And so I'm more interested in people who are willing to go a little deep with me up front because then we can go so much faster. But if you come with me with just like a simple, you think you're so fast and you want a simple answer, like mm-hmm. that's that's it's mm-hmm. just too basic. Yeah. I want to talk to you about um the New York Times this weekend had a op-ed around diversity. Did you see that article? Is it Nadia? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She would she and I were just texting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. But there, the, what was the header of the article? I was trying to pull it up here, which is, uh, is all this diversity training really paying off? Oh, maybe it's a different one. I was no. thinking Nadia Rawlinson, who was the chief people officer at Slack. She was talking about, no, no, I'm sorry. It's not Nadia. It's a different one. Uh, it was in this Sunday and it's pretty quick, it, uh, pretty short one. And then I think the New Yorker did a longer article, but is all this training maybe yes. causing more problems than it's solving. Um, and, you know, it, this is just a, I mean, billions of dollars are going after DEI initiatives around there. Are you seeing uh, things working? Are you seeing some things that are giving you hope? Um, are we, are we solving the right problems? Um, such a big area of focus for so yeah. many people. It's a mixed bag to your point. Mm-hmm. And that's why I could understand that 
the author's point of view, because if he or she is in a bag of volume, I don't see volume working still. I still, you know, when companies say like, we need to do global training asynchronously at a low cost. It's like, that's actually all about delivery and it has nothing to do with outcomes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so I don't see that working at, at volume. Mm -hmm. The only times I see effectiveness is when number one, they actually have goals that can be measured. If they're just doing training to check the box, I, no one pays attention. Yeah. Right. Think about like, if anyone's going to have their bonus tied to it, suddenly they're going to pay attention. So if you, if you don't have goals that are going to be tied to something, mm -hmm. what's the point? A CFO does not manage his or her PL based on, you know, general trainings. They look at like, well, what am I going to be measured on? Mm -hmm. So where I see effectiveness is where there's actual goals that can be measured and will be said transparently. That's like number one. Mm -hmm. um, number two is when they think about inclusion on top of diversity, when they look at the complexity that we were just talking about. If they look at it simply and just say like, we have to have these numbers, that's that's only one measurement. That yeah. You have to also have sentiment analysis, right? To be able to say, is there a sense of inclusion and belonging and psychological safety? Not just is the representation. And that's the complexity that, mm -hmm. that is life, that is teams, right? Because mm -hmm. the only way we get to those financial outcomes that are true, that have been proven over and over again, that when we do diversity, inclusion, belonging well, everyone benefits financially. The only way mm -hmm. that happens is with inclusion and psychological safety and belonging. And yet if we're not doing sentiment analysis, we don't know that that's happening. So yeah. it, just, it requires, again, people to actually ask the more complex questions and be able to then gauge progress, just like you would with any other business metric. I, I feel the hard part of this is some of the benefits are really hard to measure in a way. And I'm not trying to skirt being accountable because we, I was just on a show with Janine Yancey who's a good friend of mine. Yeah. And she's saying we need to have 2023 is going to be the year where we're more accountable as an HR function for all these investment dollars that we're doing in DEI and other things. I'm like hundred percent agree. But if we're doing this to realize greater business outcomes, there's yeah. a lot of things towards that. Like, are we having really open conversations? Are we really debating? Are we really cracking the creativity code? Because some people who didn't feel welcome to the table, didn't feel their ideas mattered, are feeling like they do. And they're, they're jumping in more. How do we, how do we know that, you know, and, and maybe there's ways that we can sort of circle around that for, you know, things like um, employer net promoter score and, and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do. But it feels like those moments uh, where we're debating, challenging, arguing, you know, hashing out a, a solution, that's where the diversity of opinion, perspective, yep. ideas should play. Yep. But is that where we're, are we paying attention then? I don't know. I just don't know. You know, I don't know. Yeah. So that is where the sentiment analysis works. So if you think about it like qualitatively and quantitatively, right? So mm -hmm. quantitatively, you can look at diversity and say, you know, does Sally only hire white women? Right. <laughs> right? That's a very clear metric. Then right. you can say, we're going to ask Sally's team whether their voice is being, it's, it's their feelings. So each individual, and it's obviously kept confidential, but it's a sentiment analysis around inclusion and belonging and psychological yeah. safety. And if, and there's specific questions that we know are correlated to 
those being positive or negative, right? Mm -hmm. And by the way, where I get all this information so that everyone feels like they are informed is Stanford has a lab called the VMware Leadership Lab. It was started by Stanford Clayman, which I was on the board of for years. And they are like the I, just the most interesting people to me because not only are they smart about science, but they are very mm -hmm. much interested in design thinking and small experiments, testing and sharing, and it's open source. So you don't have to like, you know, it's, it's open. It's on their website. Go look. Oh, cool. But yeah. But yeah. like there are ways to ask these questions to be able to gauge at both the are the right people in this organization or where do we have a deficit in thinking, right? Are mm -hmm. we very narrow thinking mm -hmm. or, or, and, you know, are they actually feeling like they have a voice, which is one mm -hmm. thing and that they're also able to contribute, which is the second thing. That's the difference between inclusion and belonging. So inclusion, mm -hmm. I'm invited to the party. Belonging is you're asking me to actually choose the music. I'm like the DJ that's contribution. If you don't have contribution, how are you possibly going to get all the great ideas? Because, right, people are like, I'm here, but you're really not mm -hmm. asking me to contribute, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, there are great questions for that. Just like with marketing, right? These are the questions mm -hmm. we know in marketing, like intent to buy, you know, how much repeat. Like we, we know all these psychometrics in marketing. We're really good at it. But some somewhere there's a delta that we just think HR, it's like, well, we're just going to tell them what to do and they're going to just do it. <laughs> yeah. We're customers. We really have to understand sentiment analysis with customers. It's like, no, we really have to understand sentiment analysis with employees too. Right. Yeah. And that I, I, I have not heard an ex explanation as beautiful as you just gave around uh, inclusion and belonging the DJ at the party. Um, <laughs> but you know, I've seen it when you see someone light up because they are feeling like uh, my, who I am, I yeah. can deliver. Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's really a beautiful thing. Uh, and unfortunately, it's probably more rare um, in, in my life experience than uh, I wish it were. Yeah. But I think that's a, that's an aspiration we should all have. And, and what gets in the, I feel like there's so many things that get in the way of that. For example, one of the things that's been on my mind lately is how in this fast paced world, particularly for, let's just say tech companies, because we, you know, we live in, we both live in the neighborhood of all this tech yeah. is that no company, very few companies, I should say, are building for a hundred year, you know, existence. They're building for yeah. right now, five to 10 years. Let's have an exit, sell this and that. So the investment in leadership, maturity, growing something for the long term, doesn't happen as much. And I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers or blaming anyone, but I feel like that, train is so fast that yeah. we are i have several friends in the leadership development industry and they are just licking their child like they're so busy right now because there's so many leaders that have been underinvested in and when you go through all the layoffs that we're going through right now and you have these people they are terrified to have yeah. a conversation they have to let someone go and you right. see the consequences and it's those hard moments right when yeah. you earn trust or you lose it you know yeah 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 yeah, I love learning and development. And I love your focus on the 100-year company. When I, I So I did, um, back in the day, a TED Talk on the future of work. And when I prototyped it in front of Gabby, our mutual friend, yeah. and others, um, when I prototyped it, I had a couple companies in there of like, you know, these are the companies that are thinking about the future of work. And my friends basically said, the only one you can actually say is Patagonia. And I was like, what? Because at the time, I won't mention what the other companies were. Yeah. I was working with a bunch of companies that were doing really interesting work. But you know what happened? The CEO changed. In the time that, you know, I was prepping the talk to when I delivered the talk, you know, things change. And yeah. so ended up only putting Patagonia in my talk and it's still the only company 
that see has good press because leadership changes because you know yeah. stock or the whatever you know and if you don't have this foundational value that's going to outlive that one ceo you know yeah you're right it's just like you know the flip of of culture and what people invest in and how managers are you know whether they're trained or not it it does feel like it's very much up to the whim of a couple people in an organization and then and then you see like beautiful minnows you know they they follow the leaders like oh airbnb is doing a great job investing people everyone wants to work for airbnb oh this company you know it's like it just yeah. changes so you like you know i just wish it would be so obvious to you you know it feels so obvious yeah, yeah. this is what to do to get the best talent and have them do their best like the science is very clear right i got asked this question go ahead change I was going to say, do you think it's changing? Do you think now, because the reason I ask is I came across an article recently uh, referencing where we used to call startups unicorns, what we should actually, in the new time period, they should actually be referencing more like camels, meaning, and it goes down and it says the current situation is particularly difficult for Silicon Valley, where the predominant model is to raise unicorns. The colloquial different reference to start for the billion dollars. This is done through rapid growth. The problem now, however, is that the growth at all costs methodology, which the Valley's top players are exceptionally good at, only works in the strongest bull markets in the most optimal conditions. Yeah. Meaning we should actually, camels are able to survive for longer periods of times without sustenance, withstand mm. the scorch, you know, all that. So it's, are we in that time period now where, cause how many, how many IPOs did we have last year? I don't think yeah. we, like, None. <laughs> it was down. Yeah. yeah. And, and Stripe's yeah. not going to IPO this year. Canva's not going to IPO this year. You know, these, whatever they do, these, it's going to be a lot less than what they thought was going to be last year. If, if, if they do it, which is why they won't do it this year. Right. So, um, so I, I just wonder if that, if, if the tide has now changed and now we're looking at a, whereas companies were, as you, you know, you talk about they're on this five to six year run, are we going to a 12 to 15 year run? of where now you you will have to invest in leadership. You will have to invest mm -hmm. in your culture even more from the top down than you, you know, historically have. I mean, so time will tell. I don't know. I, I, there, I'm a ridiculous optimist. I have not met an entrepreneur who's like, a, you know, a pessimist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I see people like the Brian Chesky's who are next generation leaders um, of very large organizations who, you know, think, think long-term, you know, I do think he thinks long-term. Um, and I've seen that in some of the different ways he's invested in the employee experience at different times and in different markets. So I, but I haven't seen like a ton, to be honest. Um, I, when I meet a leader of an organization, they don't typically stay that long. So that's part of the challenge, right? Brian's been there since the beginning. So it's like, how do you find organizations where, they have the intestinal fortitude to be able to ride the ups and downs with a very clear value structure. Um, and it, you know, and, and it wasn't like money. He was always an ATM, right? Like they had down periods. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I would hear that with, with my friends who are at Google, they were like, you know, when you work for an ATM, you just ask for what you need. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I don't know, Shane, like, I just, I think it's always going to be a mixed bag. And the question is how do we, essentially reflect back to leaders, like a little bit of legacy, like how do you want to not just, 
you know, feel financially secure, which most leaders are kind of past that, but actually be proud of like the way and what they've created for others that will have leadership beyond when they're in the seat. Like, I don't know. I, I hope that there's a little bit of an awakening and a desire to be more than just the, sort of the ego-based leader that is just looking to, you know, make the most money. I just, I feel so 1900s. <laughs> sure. But it does sure. seem, Shane, that that is that point you bring up in the article is a really that's thought provoking that's cool like that's interesting like yeah. maybe this is a moment like the dot com bubble bursting in 2000 2001 people really step back and go well i need to be more thoughtful about my business plan more thoughtful around where who i choose to work for i and you know there's right. a lot of tech workers now that are revisiting their math around who they want to work for well i got a really interesting we have a you know, uh, folks reach out on the website to sign up for our newsletter or to just say, hey, um, I got a question. We had one come in this week, which really stopped me in my tracks. It was, hey, Steve, I you know, follow you on TikTok. Um, and my wife overlap with you at Cisco. So we, we love a lot of your, you know, humorous pokes at Cisco stories. <laughs> Um, but he said, I've, I've not had a successful choice on some of these startups that I've gone to mm. and you say whether, you know, what's the, can I do a better job of assessing a startup, you know, leadership team? Mm. And I just sat there and went, wow, because some, some of the startups, I mean, it, like you say, it's always, uh, on the continuum of product knowledge, engineering knowledge, capacity to re re raise capital, uh, capacity to lead people, lead people well, leadership maturity. Like, I, I don't know that there's one right formula. I've seen people yeah. who've been, I mean, there's documentaries around the Elizabeth Holmes and, uh, yeah. you know, um, you know, folks like that who are a little bit, you know, sideways in a bunch of respects, but also have the capacity to go really far, you right. know? So, so I was asking him like, Hey man, there's no, I was telling him, I was like, I don't think there's a formula here, but if, it depends on what you're looking for. Are you looking for, I want this, I want to know that they can execute in five to seven years and I can have a good windfall or I want to have a good growth experience for my career and learn from people and they're good coaches and mentors. I don't know. Right. It's just, it's not it's, so, so simple. It's actually kind of reminds me of your first question of like, sort of like saying like, who's a good CPO. Right. And you're like, right. what are you looking for? Right. Who's a good leader. What are you looking for? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because Patagonia is not for everybody. Not everyone mm -hmm. wants to live in Santa Barbara and might not espouse to the politics or whatever, right? right? So so I do think it goes back to values alignment. Like if if you are in the mode of like, let's just go as hard and fast for the next three to five years at, as an employee, and that's what the leadership is saying, then you're aligned. But if you're not, and you're more like, hey, I actually don't know how long I'm going to get on this beautiful planet. I yeah. kind of want to live every year fully. I want to work hard, but I want to mm -hmm. do it surfing or whatever. Then Patagonia mm -hmm. might be, you know what I mean? So it depends on what your goals are. Um, I, I think really it's about paying attention to what the leaders are saying and doing, right? Because we know that what, what they say, I mean, first of all, they can say the wrong things and then that's very clear. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, are you saying and doing, right? The mm -hmm. things that are aligned with your values. And then I do think ownership structure is a, is a big difference. Like if they are thinking about quarterly earnings, you got to think about that differently. And then there's a lot of private companies. Um, yeah. You know, it doesn't have to always be go big or go home. I think mm -hmm. it's really important to sort of question that. And mm -hmm. I work with a bunch of small businesses. So I'm part of a group called Women's Presidents Organization. 
and they're women who have companies, you know, anywhere from like a million up to hundreds of millions. And it's so fun for me. It's like my ongoing MBA to meet mm -hmm. with them quarterly for a couple of days and go deep on each other's businesses. And there's 20 of us. So there's a lot of different kinds of businesses. There's mm -hmm. very different ways they run it. There's not like an answer. That's why I love the complexity of it. Like, yeah, but think beyond the big sexy companies like there's more than just netflix and google <laughs> you know what i mean like there's so yeah. many different places one can work i know I, I the the probably the company that i had the greatest period of job satisfaction just feeling like i mattered i made a difference i have really good relationship you know with many parts of the company was the company no one ever heard of pmc sierra in canada yeah and whenever i would get interviewed no one ever asked me about that company not sexy, Steve. Yeah, I know. It's like it wasn't a fang. It wasn't a part of those. But, uh, right. but I would, I would love to. Let's. I want to dive a little bit more into. You know, you've got a window into how organizations are thinking about talent through the CPO role, and you're talking to a lot of people who you know do things that I love to do, which is you know help grow cultures and organizations and, and leaders and so forth. Are you seeing? a change there at all? What, are you seeing yeah. any shifts in terms of what people are looking for? Cause I, I heard from one of my friends who recruits also for HR positions. He goes, wow, uh, this was 2020 beginning of 22. And he was telling me, I just had the greatest year ever. I go, really? Like in the, in the middle of the pandemic, he goes, yeah. Cause every organization's uh, realized they need to raise the bar for their yeah. talent team. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious what, what you see, because you've got a really, for me, fascinating perspective on the, on the world of work through, through the work that you do. Thank you. Yeah, it is fun to see the shifts and it, we are going in the right direction. I totally agree with that friend's experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, before the pandemic, I do feel it was a little bit of like plug and play. And, you know, I was just trying to like seed my crazy ideas, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, into the, mm -hmm. into the ethos. And they were not always picked up what I was putting down. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but when the pandemic happened, we doubled Steve, like we went from like a nice well-oiled machine to like, holy drinking from the fire hose yeah. which, as a professional services company. That's not our jam. Like we're not a tech company that's used to doubling. Right. Yeah. And it's because everything that he just, what he was describing to you, they were like, Oh, suddenly actually the way in which HR runs as a people organization, really matters because yeah. you have people who have health issues that have a whole range of things. We have hybrid, which no one know, knew what to do. And then we had George, George Floyd's murder, which yeah. suddenly people were like, Oh wait, <laughs> like yeah. really missed the boat on three major things. So when you have, to, when you're forced into questioning everything, suddenly that chief people officer role is like, um, we need to have someone who's strategic, who can mm -hmm. lead, who also is not going to burn out herself or himself because yeah. that's the other thing is like the, the leaders who were like mm, a little too empathic, but didn't have the business chops, mm -hmm. like what didn't want to ever let them go because they're so nice. Well, that's wonderful. I'm all for nice, but like yeah. you need to have the yes. And, and you need to have people who can also manage their own energy where they're not absorbing all of the drama of the organization. Then they burn out. Yeah. Right. So, and also because from a leadership perspective, if I can't manage my own energy, like what is that saying to my team, right? It's really like the only leadership motto is to burn yourself out. Yeah. So it was this more complex leader who, you know, had the business acumen, had the empathy, but didn't absorb people's stuff and then could think systemically. That's the big shift, I would say. Uh-huh. Used to be a little bit more like 
program here. Okay, we're gonna do hypos. Okay, we're gonna do a you know compensation redesign. It was kind of project based leadership, you know, mm -hmm. and then it's holistic and systemic because the only mm -hmm. way things actually change is if you change the system, mm -hmm. and that means technology changes. That means organizational design changes. Like you know how hard it is to change a system. Yeah, but if you have a systems thinker in charge of your people, like mm -hmm. you basically just have a really nice mom or dad running. Yeah. HR, right? Yeah. When I took my first head of HR, you're reminding me of some a counsel I sought. Um, I don't know if you know Yolanda Gonzalez, but I she she I don't know what she's up to now, but she was the head of HR for Matson, um, oh, you know, yeah. the freight company. Mm -hmm. Uh she and I were she was a boss of mine at AMD. And when I years later, um, uh, I said, Thanks to your tutelage, I'm getting my first head of HR opportunity. Do you have any advice? And she's like, and you are going to have so much stuff to worry about. <laughs> You're going to have to figure out how to not worry about everything. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, come on. How hard can it be? And then, you know, you're six months into your first head of HR role. You walk into the cafeteria and you know something about everyone in that room. This yeah. person's going to get a performance warning tomorrow. This person is about to resign and their boss doesn't know it's coming because they confided in you to, you know, this person is going to have their team relocated or this person's budget's going to get cut. And because you are in the know and it's a very powerful, um, you know, overwhelming sometimes sense of like, Phew. and it, you're right. If you can't distance yourself. And my biggest curse was I, I was always loath to say no to anything and you cannot be in the service business and not say no you are going to be working yourself to the ground which i did i did um right, and, what's uh, the doesn't have a hard time saying no <laughs> <laughs> and when you're in the service industry there's no such thing as too much service yeah you know? so that so you have to you have to contract and do the you know peter block flaws consulting and all that stuff but let me ask that question differently so organizations are, are raising the bar. They're, they're seeing more uh, and, and maybe understanding more of what's going to work for them. Are, what are the CPOs, what are you hearing differently from CPOs about what they're looking for in an organization? Oh, the other side of the equation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, they're looking, the first thing that, that they talk about is not performative HR, like performative culture. They don't want a leader who's like, I'm going to say all the things but just between you and me, that's a bunch of modern bullshit. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. um, so they're looking for like, is the leader going to say something that he or she actually believes? Mm -hmm. That's probably number one. Um, Cause it's about trust and values alignment. Maybe those are two different things, but I'm mm -hmm. combining them. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Um. Then, it, then it's not cookie cutter, Steve. Then it goes to like, do they want to IPO for the first time? Do they want, you know, mm -hmm. a learning culture? Like what is, what lights them up? Mm -hmm. and, and whatever lights that CPO up has to align with what that CEO thinks. Yeah. Um, there are, I've seen, again, there's not one way, like there's, I can think of one company that I should not name because it's too, too much information, but there's one company where the CPO was basically like, Hey, I have specific things I want to do. Are you on board with the CEO? Is this my, is this my baby? Are you going to let me do this? And the, and the CEO was like, sure. Right. Mm -hmm. And that worked for a period of time until it didn't. And the CEO was like, mm, I actually have a lot of points of view of this, even though I tried to give you a lot of autonomy. Yeah. So the next CPO that he wanted to hire was someone who was much more like, are we like locked in on things that, that we think matter in the culture? And it's mm -hmm. not, I'm giving you autonomy. So it depends on honestly what the CPO's 
view of his or her role is and if yeah. the lead really buy into that or not. So it's a, maybe mm-hmm. aligned. Maybe that's a third part. It's just like, are we aligned on what the role is, which is different than values and different than trust, but distinguishingly those th- three things I would say are probably what matters most. Yeah. And th- this role, I, you know, sh- I've tried to, I mean, Shane looks at me sort of cross-eyed sometimes when I tell him how weird the HR universe is and bless his heart. He tolerates a lot of my, like, you don't understand comments, <laughs> but it is, it is, a weird, weird profession. There's no accreditation. There's a whole, there's probably 15 core disciplines from, you know, recruiting to training, to labor relations, to compliance and benefits and comp and immigration real, like this is just a huge field. No one brings a, you know, expertise and all that stuff. Right. Uh, It's highly relationship dependent. Like if you don't have a good, very good relationship and see the same, uh, same wave through, for most things with the CEO and ideally the CFO. And then if you're big enough and have a general counsel and the general counsel, then you're, you're going to be miserable and all those things. And everyone's got a different view of what they need and what they want. Right. So it's really, it's really hard. So I default to the person that you mentioned, which is, do we generally see the world the same way generally? And do you respect my capacity to contribute? And I remember the first time that I was building HR, I was at LinkedIn. I'd always run HR, but I never built it from nothing. Yeah. And I was talking to the CEO and he's, uh, and it was about compensation philosophy. And it was, we were having to write our S1 and it yep. was about the job philosophy. Yep. And I was like, you need to write this. He goes, no, I hired Steve Sordello to be the CFO. He's writing the financial plan. Erica's the general counsel. She's writing, you know, the legal thing. And you're the, I say, I said, so just hang on here. You want me to write the compensation philosophy for your company? Are you sure? And so he paused. He goes, well, I said, because I could. I said, I, but I think my role is to advise you on what it could be and what the pros and cons are of different models. I'll tell you what I think it should be, but you got to kind of own this because it's your company. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was a learning point for both of us, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, just like I've been in places where they say, "Hey, um, I got too many direct reports. You're going to go work for the CFO now." And I go, "Yeah." Okay. I said, "Okay." Um, the company I was with was, you know, in the people business, and if you have the HR person working for the CFO, like, do you realize the message that that's sending? If I'm not the right person, that's why you're demoting me to work for the CFO. Then you need to do what you need to do. But it's just a really strange. In a in a good way, I, I like it, but it's not for everyone, and it's really right. weird. You know, right. and that's why placing's got to be hard. You know, exactly. We embrace the weird, Steve. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, you bring up a great point, and I should add that I totally take that as an addendum. If it doesn't report to the CEO, I don't know any chief people officer who's interested. Now, yeah. if they're a director VP and they want, they're okay being report to the CFO, like different kind of organization, that's fine. But a chief mm-hmm. people officer no effing way. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, no. Mm-hmm. The, what you mentioned too, is, which is interesting is because I came from a dual background of HR and marketing. And so when I started to do my entrepreneurship, we did HR and marketing. I always looked at them as the flip of the coin, meaning one side of the coin is let's think about the customer experience. The other side of the coin is let's think about the employee experience. And if right. those two aren't in beautiful symmetry, that's where you get some dissonance in the culture. Like if we say we're an obsessed customer-based 
company. I think of like Amazon pops to mind of like, we're obsessed with the customer, right? And they have yeah. all these metrics for the customer and then they have nothing <laughs> for the employees, mm -hmm. which I don't work with Amazon. So I don't know what they have on the inside. But the point mm -hmm. is, if it's not symmetrical, then what, the, what, right? Yeah. So I actually look at our role as HR people as more aligned to the marketing role mm -hmm. than to look to the GCs. GCs to me feel like sometimes they're allies, but often it's much more about managing risk, which is an is a 1900s view of HR, right? right. Versus versus optimizing talent, which is like the you know 2030 view of, of right. people, right? So and especially in CFOs, it just depends on the CFO. I've seen some who are incredibly modern and some who are just about you know dollars and cents. It depends on where they came up, right? Yep. Yeah, and I've seen some of these really harsh, crude um, layoff procedures, and they go, yeah. "What?" Looks like the lawyers ran that show. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yes. they're they're mitigating uh, legal risk and just wrecking the culture. Just wrecking. Right. It. We we have a saying uh, in HR: the worst boss to have is someone who a former employment lawyer. That's the worst boss to have in HR, yeah. <laughs> because everything's like whoa, whoa, that could blow up. That whoa, 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 you know, and right. um. And there's some wonderful, you know, former uh, employment lawyers who are good at HR. But if that's their bias, that's their strength. They're going to lean on it when times are tough, right? That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, it doesn't always doesn't always set it up for for success. But uh, well, listen, when you think about 2023, what's coming uh, in front of us? What gets you most excited right now, Sally? Besides being on this podcast, I think it's yeah, exactly. I think it's about creating. Like I think you know now we know. We've learned so much um, mm -hmm. in this global experiment of work. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's just continuing to run experiments and having more open mindset people that when I even talk about running experiments, they don't do like, what? <laughs> you know, I used to mm -hmm. get that before. Mm -hmm. Like now I can use the pandemic as a lived shared experience where we've gone through an experiment. We've learned a bunch of stuff. What are we going to do? Right. Yeah. Um, before, like even when I was working with, with Gap, it was many, many years ago. And they were doing row, results only work environment. Data were clear that this was had all the right business measurements going all the right ways. But the CEO at the time, who is not there anymore, so now I can talk about it, said, yeah, but it's not my lived experience. You know, he came from BCG. It was like mm. the more hours you work, the better you are. You got to, you know, perform, show up, you know. Yeah, your parking lot's empty. Where are everybody? Right. Yeah. So, mm. you know, that stuck in my brain because he said it's not my lived experience. And so it kind of, you know, there's just certain things that I was like, ooh, that, that's the nugget. And yeah. now we have this lived experience where we can all draw on it and say, we know how to make shit up. We know how to yeah. create, we know how to run experiments and we know how to keep getting better. That is not going to change. I think it will only serve again. It's a win, win, win. Like the yeah. zero sum mentality, I also think is starting mm -hmm. to go away. I'm, yeah. You know, I definitely still hear it from some of the bank CEOs. Like there's definitely still some very old guard thinking that's zero sum. But mm -hmm. I'm going to say if my forecast that's optimistic, but I think based in it's like it's a win, win, win. There is mm -hmm. an abundance mentality. We just have to design for it. Number two, run experiments because they're happening anyway. So if you don't yeah. actually define it and like measure it, it's just mm -hmm. a shitty experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shane was uh, in one of those. He does this to me on a weekly basis. I, we were just debating something and I was struggling with something and uh it's the fundamental discomfort that every business leader has that there is no benchmark right now. There is no benchmark for this. 
Nope. So Shane, what's the answer if there is no benchmark? Yeah, yeah, you have to be the benchmark. That's yeah, right. So many, every, so many, <laughs> so many, so many, yeah, so many people want the answers. You know, we sit on all these calls and we talk to all these different companies, much like you're doing, but we're on the other end of it. It's almost like a therapy session. It's, hey, we've got this problem. Hey, but like, and you can hear really quick. It's like, you know, I, I was telling Steve, there's a show on A&E called, um, uh, it's, it's about addiction. And mm -hmm. essentially you can, you can see the pattern after you watch four or five episodes, you can see the pattern of, oh, this person doesn't really want help. Like it just, like they're just, they're just going through the motions of what it is. And oftentimes we can hear that sometimes and, and we'll choose not to work with a customer um, yep. just because it's like, oh, we're just ticking a box here. Like this doesn't yes. really, this doesn't, this doesn't really satisfy us. Right. So, um, you know, thankfully Steve and I are aligned in that way of, Hey, yeah, this is a good thing, but it's a lot of money, but this is not, neither one of us are going to enjoy this at all. So mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, tell us, um, what other companies like us are doing. I go, why, why do you want to know what other companies like you're doing? And well, have you worked with them? No, I haven't. Isn't that why you hired me? It's because I'm not like all those people. <laughs> I know. You know, we should try, Steve. Oh, did you want to be a follower? Right. Did you, I've did said you that. Follow? Yeah. Because yeah. like, anytime, so we, we talked about this at the Stanford lab. Anytime people are looking for best practices, number one, they're fixed mindset. Because it's like mm -hmm. best practice means we're done. Number right. two means they're a follower and not a leader. Like how inspiring is that? I'm like mm -hmm. yawn, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we talk about better practices, meaning how do we continue to get better because we are running experiments, showing data, learning from it and doing the next thing. That's the design mm -hmm. thinking you know, methodology in, on the yeah. customer experience that we have to have on the employee side. Yeah. And again, I'm going to say like the experiments are already happening. You just haven't defined them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you haven't, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it is a global experiment that's happening. Do you know your data? Have you, have you, you know, tested it? That's, yeah. that's what I think people could be right. lit up. And it's so counter to this culture, uh, you know, and so uh, reaffirming to hear what you're saying because Shane and I talk about this all the time. This is an era of experimentation. The model of work was not built for rapid change and iteration like we're going through right now. That's why it feels really unsatisfying and scary. And all these models of work, and I'm starting to get an inventory and, and put it into my arsenal. Like the, I have a talk that I have to give on Thursday. And I said, let's talk about one that's really broken and that's compensation. They're going to go, what do you mean? I said, well, this high velocity uh, job change environment that we're in has revealed that your budgeting process for salary increases does not benefit someone staying. It benefits them leaving. Mm -hmm. And you're, you have no budget for new hires. You have a budget, annual raise budget. And it's getting exposed. It's broken. It's not built for all this movement right now. So you got to get your hands uh, around that. Um, but it, it is really hard because we're not used to it. And it's, you know, fill it, you know, it's on the pile of all these new things that leaders have to deal with, yeah. which is, which is really hard. But I think you're right. I think advantage is going to go to the early adopters, the people who are, who are paying attention. Okay, let's try this. You know, that's why people have had me on podcast say, are you so excited about, look at all these companies that are for now and ever more remote. I go, no, I'm not excited about that at all. <laughs> they go, what do you mean? I said, because the world just changed and the world that we've been in is not the world that's going to be in two or three years from now. So I would say for now, let's do this. 
but let's right. revisit it next year because you may want something different. I may want something different. Let's just agree that we're going to learn, right? That's exactly. So one right. size fits all. And, and I love your point, which is one size fits all leadership is, is, is gone. doesn't work anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and that is not uh, satisfying to hear from the you know, <laughs> folks who've been around for a while, right? I know, yeah. but you know, I think maybe the, the, the opportunity we have is to turn it back on them and say, is that really what you want? Like, is, isn't that kind of boring? Like, mm-hmm. don't you want to have an interesting conversation about the complexity of it? Like, right. I know your brain is wired for fast, but like, you're really interested actually in like the nuance. Like no one wants to watch a story, a, 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 you know, a movie that is simplistic. That gets right. boring. You want the twist. What's the turn? What's the... What's the surprise? What's the depth of the character? That's the movie you want to watch. You don't want to be in the stupid movie that's like boring and formulaic. No one wants that. Yeah. And interestingly enough, that sort of, you know, to sort of wrap this uh, together a little bit, that's why I got into HR because every day is so (laughs) different. Improv. Really? I love love improv. Right, Sal. Sal, Sal you, you, one of the things you talked about earlier was, um, you know, this COVID thing happened and it scared the shit out of everybody. Um, I think not everybody, but it forced some people to change. And yeah. there's this thing. There's this thing called the region beta paradox. Are you familiar with this? No. Tell so, me. so, so, so the region beta paradox is a phenomenon that people can sometimes recover more quickly from more distressing experiences than from less distressing ones. So essentially saying a person prefers to walk at three miles an hour if distances are less than a mile and to cycle 15 miles an hour for longer distances, despite the remoteness of points in the region beta, they will be, they will reach, they will be reached faster than most points in the nearby region alpha. So essentially meaning people will stay in a really shitty relationship and say, ah, you know, it's, oh, it's not that bad. Like, yeah he cheated and yeah, like this thing happened, but he's not abusive and it's not, you know, these things until that one thing of whoever, whatever that own person's thing is. So organizationally, I I don't think, and Steve talks a lot about this, like everybody thinks, oh, we're going back to normal or, oh, this is, it's, it's happened and now we're in a new normal this hasn't even like finished yet because, because I think some people were affected. So their region beta parent, like it got so bad immediately that they were forced to change. And now here, now we're two years, three years out from it. Now we're in a possible recession. Now, now, now somebody, now there's going to be a different wave of discomfort and different people, different companies are going to feel differently. So they're going to have to react differently. And this, I don't, it's like, it's going to be this ever going like yeah. El, El Nino of experimentation throughout the HR world. Right. Well, you know, part of that, I think Shane is um, in the beginning, our expectations were set that this is only temporary. So I think a lot of it is expectation. Do you management. Think, I don't want to cut, I don't want to cut you off. Do you think that's with expectation or do you think the most ingrained thing in all of us is a level of comfort and Oh shit, I hope this is temporary. Like I I really just yes, hope and. this is yeah. I would say both both and because back to the neuroscience, we use less of our brain exhaustion when we have repetitive thoughts. So if I can wake up and do the same morning routine and do the same 
meetings and whatever, it's less exhausting for me. And when I go to a conference, I am freaking exhausted because all these new things are new, right? And that's why we're so tired. So we have to understand and be compassionate to ourselves. It's like, that's the way we're wired. We're not wired to exhaust our brain. We're wired to preserve our energy, right? We are creatures after all, even though we try to ignore it and be like robots. So, so, so one is like understanding neuroscience. And then two is the social science, which is everyone told me up front, this shutdown is going to be like maybe a couple weeks. And it just became this series to your point on that term that I cannot remember how to repeat. It was just like these series of small, like, okay, it's just going to change. I was like, wait, we're going to maybe have a vaccine soon. And it, it, we had so much noise at us that it's going to come back. Everything's going to be fine. So we were also normalized to want that and expect that. Right. And it was not yeah. real. And, you know, I have a kid who's going through a bunch of stuff and I, and I always say to her, I was like, every day it's, it's moving forward. There is no going back, right? It's moving forward. Why would we want to go back what, to whatever that is? Why would we not want to be co-creating our future? Mm-hmm. So that even that expectation that like it's going to be simpler like back in the day even people are like you know back in the day and i'm like oh when women didn't have voting rights wait which back in the day do you want (laughs) i'm trying to figure out when was it great you know oh was it the Mm -hmm. madman era great because he looked miserable in that job right so i just think there's like a there's still some some storytelling that's not true about our past and, and if we can just switch people into their prefrontal cortex and ask a question, what do you want to create? What do you want to feel that you felt before? And how, like, there are things you might want to bring from the past into the future. It's typically That's a great feelings, question. Mm-hmm. Right. And how do we make those feelings what we anchor on versus those practices? Right. So, so Steve and I debated, you go ahead. Well, go. well, so, you know, I don't know if you know where this is going. So Steve was here <laughs> in Portugal and had a, had a big talk. And we were out and we were talking about, you know, everybody's talking about happiness and we want to be happy and you want to be happy at work or you want to be, you know, it's, and it's just like what you just talked about, like the region beta paradox is what it was called. So that same thing happened, that, that same thing happened in our personal lives, right? Like I just saw where right now they're doing this big study on how many marriages actually altered and changed for the good and changed for the worse during COVID because now people were forced to actually sit and have a conversation with someone, not with the normal day-to-day tasks going on. Um, And they they relate it to the same psychology of this thing called empty nest syndrome that we go through once the kids graduate and they're out of the house and now we're just stuck with each other. Right. So, um, but, but Steve and I were on this talk and we were like, yeah, happiness, like happiness is relative. Like I can be happy, but in the worst, like in the most, horrible thing just happened to my family, but I'm like, I'm happy because they're, they're coming through it and they're, you know, they're going, so it like, it's there. And what we landed on was when was the last time you felt alive, right? What does feeling <laughs> alive feel like, right? Like when, when does that, like, like, do you, what makes you feel alive, right? Do something <laughs> that makes you feel like, and make you feel alive can be scary as shit. Like it can be like, yeah. I, I've had a gun. I've, I grew up in rough neighborhoods. I've had a gun pulled on me three times in my life. I can assure you when you have a gun put to your forehead, you feel alive. Right. And it's this crazy moment of everything happening. So that I think is more of a metric that Steve and I kind of landed on of like, this is something we should like hone more. It's not the happiness. It's where do we feel alive? Cause the alive can be okay. Sally, Steve, we're going to build this great company, but 
you know what, screw it. You're not going to sleep for the next 12 months and we're going to have to grind it out and we're going to have to do this and you're going to need to fly six days a week and you're going to do all that. You may feel alive. You may not be happy, but you may feel alive because of what you're like, the, like whatever that psychology is of what you're going towards. So it's kind of yeah. that piece. And so that's, kind of, that's how I've reflected off of what you, what you just said. Awesome. Yeah. I like that well, one. I wrote one that more one down. What, yeah. What do yeah. you feel? Yeah. What uh, do you want to feel that you felt before? Yeah. That's a great, and, and there may not be a clear answer to that one. You know? Again, let's, let's love that. Let's love on the complexity, right? Mm -hmm. Versus, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, Shane, to your point on happiness versus aliveness, this is an area, you know, Steve saw one of my talks on the science of work-life blend. My best friend happens to research the intersection of happiness, time and money. So I know this stuff and it's, it's fantastic because it's complex. We actually have to anchor on meaning and fulfillment, not on happiness. Mm -hmm. Happiness is hedonic. It's self-oriented. It's temporal. Also, no feeling stays. So like if you're trying to anchor on something, you have to understand that like that's not the human experience. It's going to change. And yeah. so being able to build that kind of emotional awareness also, I think, is like more of that integrated work life. The things that we're learning on the pandemic side are things that we need to also embrace in the work side, which is understanding emotions, the fluidity, how to support each other, but we're not each other's therapists, the boundaries. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but meaning is my North Star, Shane. So my, my friend had a talk at Stanford called Happiness is Miserable and Here's Why. <laughs> And it's because when we go after it, it's too short term oriented. So meaningfulness yep. is, is her, you know, North star. Nice. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sally, I, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Your energy is infectious. Um, I hope some people get a chance to see this because you just, you jump off the screen and it makes me feel um, that we need to do this more often. So thank you so much for being on our show. If people want to reach you, how could they find you? or learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, forshay.com is probably the easiest. Um, certainly LinkedIn, but you have to know my email to connect. You can follow, but because I just have to, whatever. So forshay.com. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Shane? That's it. Thanks, another brother. Episode. Another episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's been great. Another episode of the Work Week After Hours. I'm Shane Howard with... Steve Cadigan and our special guest... Sally Thornton. Signing off. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.